0: Socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to
1: Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Good day to you all. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and welcome to week two of Religion Month on You Don't Have to Yell. Now, Last week, we heard from Dave Scott, a Christian entrepreneur who has a very private and personal approach to his religion that differs a lot from the more politically-minded evangelical groups who more often take the center stage on national media. Now, another group that's been as widely discussed today, albeit with a decidedly different tone, is America's Muslim population. And... To get some perspective on the Muslim experience in the United States today, I asked Anam Hussain, co-founder of tech media startup Accio, graduate of MIT's Sloan School of Business, daughter of Pakistani immigrants, and an all-around great person to join me. The biggest surprise to me was how some of the headwinds she's faced in life due to her identity had nothing to do with her religion at all. Listen on and learn, compadres.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Anam Hussein. I'm the co-founder of a media tech startup called Akio, where we have a browser plugin that helps give you context to news you're reading as you're reading it.
1: Wow. That's that's very applicable to what we're doing today, isn't it?
0: It is. I mean, a lot. oftentimes what we find in the news cycle is that living in a 24-hour news cycle means that we're constantly missing things and we're constantly falling behind. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you come to a news article, we want to be able to give you all that historical context you need.
1: I want to remind everyone this is not a sponsored post at all. This is just <laughs> this is purely coincidental. Maybe to start things off, can you tell me, you know, a little bit about your upbringing, kind of where you grew up and and all that good stuff?
0: Yeah, so I am Southern New Hampshire proud. I was born All in right. Mer- I was born in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Lived there for about nine years of my life before going to Wyndham, New Hampshire, which is where I lived until I up until I went to college. And now my parents are building a house in Pelham, New Hampshire. So really, just New Hampshire through and through is where wow. my life was. Mm-hmm.
1: Live free or die. And-
0: exactly. Best uh, best state slogan of the whole country, in my opinion. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially (laughs) since all the convicts have to look at it while they're making license plates. It's it's really a bitter irony to that. And now your family's originally from Pakistan, right?
0: That's true. Yep. So my parents are both from there. They immigrated to New Hampshire when my father got into Dartmouth. So that's sort of how we ended up in a random state in America. And my older brother was actually born there as well. I was the first one, not only in our immediate family, but entire extended family to be born in America.
1: Got it. Got it. So what is your what what did your dad do? Or what does he do?
0: Yeah, so my dad now he came to study um, geology. And so that's what he was uh, focused on in school. But now he is sort of the typical South Asian immigrant where he uh, runs some convenience stores, gas stations, things of that nature.
1: Ah, interesting. Interesting. So he goes comes to study geology, and then he decides to go and just found a bunch of small businesses, huh?
0: Yeah, it's sort of I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's like a bunch of signs that are put up all around the country when South Asians enter and they're like, "Hey, you should really buy a grocery store or a gas station." But he got <laughs> yeah. he got pulled into the trend and I do think that his more entrepreneurial behavior seeped into all of his children really.
1: Yeah, I you know, and I don't want to make any like broad assumptions or anything like that. But I have to imagine that in Pakistan it's probably a little bit tougher to start a business and really make a living off it. Is that fair or am I totally?
0: So yes and no. So there, I would say a lot of people start businesses. A lot of people starting, you know, the local store or they'll be starting some sort of um, used car business. And so a lot of people own businesses, but it's not like there's only a few small elite who have big businesses, which is usually the factories um, in the country and things of that nature.
1: And so what what's the typical Pakistani upbringing like then?
0: So, I think that people have their own variations. For me, um, growing up meant a lot of emphasis on what it means to hold on to your culture. So, you know, I grew up speaking the language. For me, my mom was super passionate about working as well. So, I grew up in a scenario where she was constantly talking to me in Urdu, which is the language of Pakistan. And I was constantly talking to her in English because she wanted to learn English, but she wanted to ensure I knew Urdu. So, okay. you know, that was um, something that we dealt with. And now, if you hear my mom speak, you would hardly believe that she moved to this country not knowing a word of English. There was a lot of Pakistani news channels played in our household, so Mm -hmm. constantly listening to, to my dad watching the news. In fact, I initially wanted to be a journalist and went to journalism school for undergrad because... My dad was glued to the TV watching all these Pakistani news channels. And I just figured, well, my dad clearly respects whatever this is that's on television. I want to be that. Um, And that's sort of where my initial career journey even began.
1: And so now does New Hampshire have a sizable Pakistani community or no?
0: It's a good question. So we do now. It was obviously a lot smaller when my parents immigrated there, but they they found others. Um, They found found their sort of tribe and the community has definitely grown quite substantially. So now, you know, when I go home for a Pakistani wedding in New Hampshire, you'll see two, 300 people um, just at that wedding. And that's just our own personal community, right? Not all the others who... Who are around. So it's definitely grown. My parents, um, I also not only am from Pakistan, but was raised uh, Muslim. And so my family helped start some of the first mosques there. We've been building New Hampshire's first mosque for what feels like my entire lifetime. It's one of those projects mm-hmm. that is just very difficult to get going. Yeah. And, you know, we've had our share of complaints from the community and construction challenges, just it, you know, one day we'll get there, but it's, it's been a long journey.
1: You mentioned complaints from the community. So like what, you know, what kinds of things have come up?
0: yeah so there's a lot of stats that show that whenever any sort of religious establishment opens up in an area there's so much good it does right it helps create yeah. it helps make those spaces safer. You can look at the mosque in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and how that has how that the existence of it has changed the Roxbury community and that was sort of what we what 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 you would expect would happen in New Hampshire as well, but there was a lot of opposition to the gatherings that would happen. There was a lot of opposition to parking. People didn't want these people parking in front of their houses or on their streets if they were trying to go to the mosque for Friday prayer. There was mm-hmm. also complaints about sound because we do have a call to prayer um, yep. that goes on through the speaker phones. People didn't want the noise. Um, so there was a fair share of complaints that came that blocked us from building for a while.
1: Got it. So it wasn't like the, uh, the mosque that they were building near the twin towers, or near this near Ground Zero, where everyone sort of was up in arms against the fact that there was a there was a mosque being built that, that it was Muslim. It was more just standard crowd control issues. Is that right, or am I am I wrong?
0: I think there was a mix when that chapter of the mosque. Like I said, this has been going on a long time. I think when that chapter of the mosque was happening, I was a lot younger, so I don't know the full okay. details of the community reaction. But I knew I do know there was a, a bunch of structural things.
1: Got it. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, with the process of founding a mosque, but um, right. obviously the first thing you think when you hear community complaints and you hear mosque is you think there's some Islamophobia there. I mean, New England in general is a really white part of the country, but New Hampshire is a very white part of the very white part of the country. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel that growing up or?
0: So it's such an interesting thing for me to reflect on in my life. Because I, I know people always say the cheesy line, "I don't see in color," but I yeah. really believe that for a good part of my life I didn't, and I realize now it's because I was the only color. So growing up in New Hampshire, all my mm-hmm. classmates, all my peers, my neighbors that I played with, everyone around me was white, um, mm-hmm. and that was just that was just the town I lived in, and all my friends were, and all the parents that I spent time with, and so I had. Things happened to me throughout not just my time in New Hampshire, but throughout adulthood related to Islamophobia. And I think of them in different phases. So yeah. phase one was just childhood confusion. I remember the earliest moment was sitting on a swing set in elementary school. And this this Jewish kid looks at me and says, you're from Pakistan? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, we're not supposed to talk. I was so confused. I didn't know what that meant. I realize now mm-hmm. he probably thought that Pakistan and Palestine were the same thing. Um, not that okay. it makes it better. Not that it makes it okay. But I think that's no. what was going through his head. And then in middle school, I started getting called names such as Saddam Hussein's niece and um, you know, lots of other random slurs. And they were very confusing to me. And I remember I got mm-hmm. called down to the principal's office because he wanted to talk to me about how I was feeling. And I thought that was the strangest question because these names that students were calling me, my my parents' reaction, and I think some a lot of immigrant parents are like that, is if we don't talk about it, then then our kids are protected. So my parents didn't mm-hmm. sit down and talk to me about what happened with the Twin Towers. They didn't sit down and tell me like, hey, this might be happening at school or kids might say things like this. And it's not because they were naive. It's because they just didn't think that that would seep into a school environment. They thought they were protecting me by not telling me about these horrific things that were happening around me. So then when I was being called names at school, it was just, I didn't understand what anyone was even saying. And I just would kind of just either laugh or just get awkward. Um, I think the best the best instance was, um, shout out to one of my childhood friends and neighbors, Kim Piazza, when one, one guy called me, um, Saddam Hussein's. Niece and she just like literally put her fist up and went to fight him. She was a <laughs> sassy uh, Italian friend of mine. Um, she was great. So thank you, Kim. But, but yeah, I just, I was just confused and I didn't understand what was really happening. And it wasn't, I, I feel like I'm skipping a bunch of years, but it wasn't until yeah. I was older and that. Trump was running for his campaign that I started to see all these different sides to my neighbors and the people I grew up with. And I'd see their Facebook posts and I would just be so confused. Like what? I was I was your neighbor. I was on your softball team. And now some of the things that you're posting and the opinions that you're voicing are just in contradiction to my entire existence in this country. And it was just a very shocking and confusing moment because I feel like I grew up just believing the world was this beautiful, welcoming place. And because I was the only color, I didn't realize I was different until it was time for people to have opinions and share just how different they were from me.
1: Yeah, so it was really around the 2016 election where you started to see this. Is that correct or?
0: Yeah, I remember I got into, um, there was one student from my high school or from my elementary school, middle school, high school, whole childhood, who was posting about some very racist remarks. And I commented very friendly, just being like, hey, this is really strange for me to see. We were in chorus together. We were neighbors. I I, I went to some of his family's charity events. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like we had this lifelong friendship. And now I'm seeing this this message. And I just was trying to be vulnerable and explain my thinking. And what ended up happening is that him – His father, his uncle, all people who I like, you know, people who picked me up from school, who who were there at you know chaperoning events, were now attacking me for leaving my comment and saying that I was assuming that they were all racist, and I just felt so attacked and returned, and was like, what is happening? If I can't foster a dialogue with people who have different opinions than me that grew up with me and have known me since basically first grade, then how am I ever going to be able to strike a chord with anyone strike a conversation with anyone?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember during that election, I I remember you posted something on Facebook about your grandmother coming to visit. I want to say, I I don't know if that makes sense or Mm -hmm. if you were, or maybe you were going to Pakistan. I can't remember what it was, but I remember for, for me, You know, when Trump started talking about the Muslim ban or when he started talking about the wall in Mexico, I I thought to myself, I I, that's a line I can't cross. You know, that is a that is not an ideology that I can condone in any way. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking of that either and I can't remember whether it was that visit or whether your family was coming here. And I remember thinking like this woman's grandmother would not be able to come here. Yeah. Under that policy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I probably did post about that because I, I remember I had emotions around that very subject because my grandmother, upon arriving, my grandmother has since passed, um, and I think at the and, and at the time of the Facebook post had, but the reason I had posted was because she came here for her treatment. She um, had kidney failure, and they just don't have the proper resources in Pakistan to treat her dialysis. And so she was able to get that care here and extend her life and time period Mm -hmm. with us, which is something that just wouldn't happen if she wasn't able to come here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of the people I I talked to during and after the election, the, the folks who supported Trump made a couple of distinctions between what he said and and what they believed. And, and I'll, I, I want to bounce a couple of them off you.
0: Okay. Interesting.
1: The first one, my favorite one <laughs> was that he's not actually going to do any of these things. The reason that was my favorite is because generally the fear when you elect someone is they're not going to do anything they say. And in this case, the fear was that they were, the, the worst case scenario was that this guy actually was. So again, getting back to it, he's not actually going to do any of these things. So when it came to the, the Muslim ban, he's not actually going to do it. Do you have any thoughts on that one?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because I think sometimes it was used as justification. I think sometimes it's used for coping. But the problem isn't what, in my opinion... Mm-hmm. Candidates say things they're gonna do that they never do. That's just that's just the history of yeah. our politics. And so using that as justification now isn't fair, right? That's like that's basically you could use that argument for any candidate. Well, I'm just gonna vote for this person because it's not like he or she is gonna say or do any of the things they're actually saying, right? And it's mm-hmm. that that can be used for anything, but the problem isn't if they're gonna do it. The problem is the reactions and the things that are now happening as a result of those words people feeling like they now have a voice for those um, racist or not even just sometimes it's racism sexism whatever it is they um, are now have justification for coming out of the woodworks and being like yeah this is this is these are opinions that are okay to have and it's okay to ban people whether again whether that happens or not you're just allowing hate to foster
1: yeah, I remember the big phrase I heard was people would say, he says what's on his mind. And all I could think is, no, he says what's on your mind. Yep. You know, he says that thing that you don't want to say. So obviously, you had this interaction on Facebook. I just, I want to shift gears, and we can get back to the other reasons in a second. But you had this, I don't know what you want to call it, blow up on Facebook. Right. What's it been like since? What have you seen online and offline Um, in terms of the dialogue, like if things changed fundamentally since the election.
0: From what I've seen in terms of whatever my personal echo chamber might be, is that Mm -hmm. the people who voted for Trump from those same communities I saw have kind of just gone quiet. You know, the Mm -hmm. people who are anti are still out there posting sharing things that he's saying sharing changes that are happening and the people who are pro him have all just gone quiet it's like they're i don't know if some are embarrassed or if they're just like sitting back and letting letting it run its course or maybe this is exactly what they wanted to happen and they're just letting it happen and don't feel like they need to share it but i feel like the conversation isn't happening as much or maybe sadly we're just becoming desensitized to it which is also yeah. not great but i'm definitely not seeing as much conversation happen amongst adults what i am hearing about is how it's seeping into similar to how it seeped into my childhood environment how it's seeping into the lives of my friends who do have children i was on mm. a bachelorette party this summer and my friend's niece was there she is in elementary school and The word Trump came up like just casually in conversation as it does, I'm sure in many conversations daily. And she froze and we were like, oh, and we didn't even realize what it was. And we found out from her mom that she's afraid of that term, like the way like a child is afraid of monsters under their bed. And it's because a girl came up to her at school and was like, Trump is going to get you kicked out of this country. And so she just got so scared because she, you know, this is where she was born. This is where she lives. And she just, she imagines Trump as this monster who's going to take her away from her family or take her away from her school and her friends. And so when it's a trigger word for her now, and she's just a child.
1: On the adult side, though, the, have the adults been fairly well behaved then, would you say? Or have you, have you seen like overt instances of Islamophobia amongst adults that are more pronounced maybe than, than prior?
0: I don't think I've seen them. I've definitely heard stories, but again, because I'm an entrepreneur, I work from home, so I'm just not interacting with people as much as I used to. Um, but I definitely hear I definitely hear stories. My friends who do go to who do go to um, you know, work environments and it always gets uncomfortable because you're just like, do I say something? I'm at work. It's not really the setting in which to create that dialogue, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's a big I mean, this is a much bigger conversation I think, but one of the things that I've learned growing up Irish Catholic in Boston, which is, I don't, I don't think there is a more insulated class in the entire United States of America Mm -hmm. than if you were born Irish Catholic in the city of Boston. Um, (laughs) So I, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of experience being the other, but one of the things that I've, I've started to learn more about is the fact that when you fall outside the majority and something happens that either hurts or threatens you, there is a calculus that goes into deciding whether you're going to say anything or not. And a lot of that is based on, am I even going to get a receptive audience or am I going to evoke a defensive response that's going to blow up in my face? And am I better off just kind of keeping my mouth shut and pretending nothing happened and going about my day? Is that is that a fair description or am I
0: yeah I mean, you know what's interesting is I feel like, in terms of adult conversations, it's the things that aren't offensive that ah offended me the most, okay, and so let me explain that so I mentioned earlier that, in terms of Islamophobia in my life, I've gone through phases, and phase one mm-hmm. was sort of that childhood confusion. Phase yeah. two was sort of just growing pains. I remember I was in a it was one of my journalism classes at emerson and mm-hmm. I was just sitting there, and the professor, because we were a smaller school, U attendance actually mattered. And so they went through attendance and the professor got to my name and he said, "How's Saddam doing?" And I remember the whole class just went silent. And he felt awkward too. I think it was one uh-huh. of those things he didn't mean to say out loud it was happening in his head and I didn't know, I mean, looking back, I'm like, I probably should have confronted him. Probably should have told the school, but it was the first time something like that had happened to me as an adult versus all those childhood experiences. So I was just super confused. And then yeah. the phase after that, which is what I'm talking about when it comes to being offended by the non-offensive things is that now I feel like I'm just my, my, religious and cultural identities take precedent over any other part of my character. And so, Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is that's how people see me. When I, after Trump was elected, a wonderful, I mean, she's a super kind, smart, wonderful woman that I went to school with. Um, I went to grad school at MIT and so she was one of my classmates there and we were sitting in one of the hallways and after he was elected, she looked at me and she was like, and she knew I'd already started working on Accio. Everyone knew that I wanted to be a founder. And she looked at me and she was like, so do you think you'll run for office now? Like for any office, for any position. And I was like, "What? why would I do that? And she was like, well, don't you think that the American Muslim community needs more support and and voices now than ever? And I honestly didn't know what to say, but I was offended. I was offended that she looked at me and despite... There being nothing in my history that shows an interest in policy making or law or anything that leads to one of those careers i'd I'd never done anything that to me showed that that would be a career that I would go, whether it was city council or congress, anything, and to me, it felt like she had just boiled down my entire existence into that one part of me that happened to be American Muslim, yeah. I was just, it, it really offended me. And I obviously tried to be super kind. I responded and I said, Well, there's also not a lot of American Muslim entrepreneurs. Um, there's also not a lot of Pakistani female entrepreneurs. So I still feel like I am doing something for my community by taking that path. But it just, it, that was probably the comment of all the slurs and all the things that I've been said that hurt me the most because it just took away any credibility or expertise I had in any area and was just like, But you're Muslim. So you should do something about
1: that. Yeah. And this was at MIT, you said, "Yeah, right? mm -hmm. Yep. I think there's a certain amount of blindness you have when you're you're white Christian in this country. And there's sort of different stages of development. And there's sort of like the quote unquote woke stage where you're kind of bumbling around trying to figure out the right thing to do. And then you say something like, are you going to run for office thinking you're doing the right thing? But in the reality, you're 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 actually just as guilty of otherizing an individual as maybe somebody who might be a bit more blunt, right. um, In their in their preconceptions about things, yeah. That's and and so you're at phase three. Is have you, is there a phase four? Or are we still at phase three now?
0: Then <laughs> I don't. I think phase four is just as cheesy as it sounds. Acceptance, like now when people say things, it just doesn't bother me in any way. Like it really yeah. doesn't. Like I just. I, I, I get it much more rarely again because I work from home so I'm just not networking as much but I, it just phases me a lot less. I think the only times it bothers me is when it seeps into what I do in my career. and yeah. so I, I've definitely had you know moments with VC conversations or pitching where people make assumptions based on my identity and that's frustrating. Really? Um yeah. I mean I, I remember once this isn't about religion, but just more about identity as South Asian. I was yeah. doing a pitch and um and my my co founder is also she's from Hawaii and also Asian, so you know, we have two minority founders on the team and so we were doing a pitch, and we had done a ton of research interviewing interviewing potential users and what their needs and pain points, you know, the whole, the whole thing that you do. And we selected some of the best quotes from them, and we weren't thinking. We just picked some of the best quotes and put them up on slides. Didn't realize until afterwards, after a certain comment was made, that all the people we picked happened to be other people of color, specifically other Asians. And so one of the VCs that we were talking to responded and said, well... Just because you talk to a few friends doesn't mean that you have a business idea. And I was so confused when he said that. And it wasn't until I realized, oh, he's assuming because we're minorities and all of our examples were minorities, that therefore those were all our friends, not just random people we happened to speak to. And it was this grand assumption that was made that then took us from being able to show them the full opportunity and just put us in defense mode defending and explaining our research which is really not how these conversations typically go.
1: Right now there is maybe more of an emphasis on on minority founders, female founders. There's there's more of an emphasis on funding opportunities for people who fit those those categories. Does that help the conversation? Does it do a disservice? Because does it put you in a box? Like, what are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, so I mean, if you look at the amount of money that we've raised at Accio, 90% mm-hmm. of it has come from funds that invest in first-generation minorities and immigrant founders. Okay. That's just sort of where it wasn't intentional to try it and get money from those funds. We've talked to so many different funds, but yeah. that's sort of where it continues to happen. And what we found is that people say they want to invest in minorities. And obviously I'm a woman and I support women. And this is not to say that I don't, but what I found is that most of those initiatives convert into checks for white women, because you get to say that you met a diversity quota, but you still aren't that diverse. Right. And so that's what we've experienced. We've experienced, um, most of our frustration, unfortunately, comes at female founded events, because we find that most of the panelists end up being white women. Um, and the few minority women who make it are usually ones who come from a background of wealth or have already done, had some major credibility breakthrough, A.K. they're bringing something big to the table that, mm-hmm. that we just don't. And so again, I'm all for supporting women, but we've found that some of those communities are actually Less inclusive, or just investing in women is sort of a blanket. Look, we did our minority thing without really investing in actual diversity or a range of diversity.
1: Yeah, so it sounds to me like in a lot of cases, it's more of like a like they're just trying to cover their bases, but there's not a genuine interest in in the community itself. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, and I've also found that, um, and I see this both in. In investing and also here in Hollywood with all my friends who are in acting, you you see all these programs where they bring in a ton of diverse candidates, Uh, you know, in a VC, you'll see their director of platform hosting uh, founder diversity nights, you'll see big casting networks here hosting groups of all minority actors who want to make it in the industry. But those aren't the people who actually cast for the films. Those aren't the partners who are actually investing in the companies. And so they get to get these great pictures and content and put it on their site to show, look at what we did for diversity. But those are, just, those are the people who care, but they're not the people who make the decisions, who actually invest in cast and make the, make the big decisions.
1: Yeah, I remember. So when my, when my grandparents came here, they were sort of at the tail end of when people still didn't like the Irish. It was still very much the way the irish community was everybody sort of cloistered in their in their neighborhoods and 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 it was really sort of like my parents generation that was the first group of people who kind of saw that upward mobility and eventually what happened is they they all started to make a little money people got in positions of power you know lo and behold like a decade or two later wasn't that wasn't that big of a deal do do you feel like the solution is a very sort of slow process where people gradually ascend to positions of power so someone like such as yourself for example you know ascends to a position where now you can give back and you can start to fund uh you know fund ventures from uh in, in maybe a more equitable fashion and and maybe not have a situation where if you're a woman of color the bar is just set that much higher for you do you feel like that's kind of the natural progression and where it will head or do you feel there are some structural things in place that are just keeping that from happening and we need to figure out something else
0: yeah i mean i i hope one day that i'm in a position where i can do where i can do something of that nature but you know i'm not i'm not sure if i know what the exact solution is i feel like yeah. there are lots of small things that i wish would change like i think that there needs to be more opportunities i my favorite example is I don't know if it was the Boston Symphony, but there was a big symphony they found is that they were struggling to do inclusive hiring for people in their orchestra. And what they ended up doing was not only blind auditions, but blind auditions where everyone had to take off meaning that the curtain was closed and they also had to do it without wearing shoes because they found that even when they just had the curtain closed, they could hear a woman's heels as she walked onto stage to perform. And so people had to take their shoes off as well. And so obviously that's an extreme example. It's what works for them. But there needs to be ways to create communities and to have conversations without actually just seeing someone for what they are at the surface level. But then also, you know, we talk a lot about here's how people who are not a minority can benefit minorities. But I think that minorities have an equal role. I know people say, well, the full responsibility can't fall on us. And I agree. But I see too often situations where we get frustrated by the experiences we have. And we just blanket hate everyone who is not like us right I mean comedians do this uh, often um, yeah. not the be- not the best ones but some of the others where they'll just you know I mean there's a lot of com- like you know a lot of com- comedians who will make white people jokes and they'll stick and people laugh and you know everyone will laugh but there's also people who try to do that with a lack of sensitivity. And a lack of, you know, we still have to be able to support one another. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I wouldn't be where I'm at in my career if it wasn't for the people who have supported me. They're all people who are not people of color. All people who I know that if I needed it would be there in a minute to help me. And to this day, do, you know? I went to MIT and people say you go to these great business schools to build the best network possible, but my best network comes from HubSpot back when we were a less diverse place. It's a much more diverse place now and they've done incredible work to push the needle there and, and host initiatives to bring in awesome candidates of all backgrounds, but it wasn't as diverse when I was there, but everyone there was so supportive of me and I and we need to have those relationships amongst one another. We need to build communities amongst one another. And I think that's going to make the biggest difference, right? There was a study that came out that said that the amount that an American hates a Muslim decreases. It was some crazy percentage as soon as they have one Muslim friend. And I think forcing ourselves to remain in our own communities and just hate the other is not what's going to ultimately push the needle. I think it's going to be small movements, small friendships, small exchanges and buildings of communities that need to evolve all over the country and eventually get to a big enough mass where it makes a difference.
1: When I entered into this conversation, I expected to talk way more about how religion and Islamophobia have impacted Annam's life than we did. But it actually turns out that being a woman of color has created the most friction in her professional life. And there was a study done by Gallup in 2011 that kind of backs this idea up. And it shows that you know, while Muslims experience the highest level of discrimination among any other religious group in the US, with about half of them saying they experienced some kind of Islamophobia, the same study showed that people the most comfortable having Muslims as neighbors were also people from highly integrated communities who were more likely to have Muslims as neighbors in the first place. Hmm. So while Islamophobia is certainly real in this country, it seems that in the places where Muslims actually live, you're more likely to find a latent coastal racism that consists of white people making dumb assumptions based on your background. And that topic will have to be for another day. One last aside, Anam totally kicks my ass and probably kicks yours, and when her father decided to come and study in the U.S., the country gained an entrepreneur who raised another entrepreneur. Now, I watched a room full of people in 2016, adults. Cheer when Donald Trump proposed banning people like Anna and her father from the country. And for those of you who supported Trump in 2016, I'd really be interested in knowing if this interview changed your perspective at all. You know, the fact is, the Muslim world is filled with tons of entrepreneurial people looking to move abroad and better their lives, and they've got choices as far as where they go. And from what I can see, The only thing that Muslim ban would be keeping out are good ideas, which are not currently in oversupply if you have not noticed. Now next week, we have Mark Johnson of the University of Washington and author of Secular Faith, How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American Politics to talk about how religion is actually adjusted to the changing mores of modern culture rather than dictating them. Here's a little teaser for you. If you take the Bible literally, There's a stronger case for slavery than there is against it. I'm just going to sit and wait for the hate mail to come rolling in. As always, theme music courtesy of Feller Tack, sound quality courtesy of my producer Jason Putney, my brother from a mother named Mrs. Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.